Hello, and you're very welcome to Mind You, where I dive into how different people use different ways to self-care. I'm Brian Barnes from Brian Barnes Wellbeing, where I partner with people to create unique well-being solutions. Today, I'm delighted to be talking to James Tripp. James has a huge passion for serving and minding others. James is an internationally recognized authority in the fields of self-development, personal mastery, and generative change work, with a background in philosophy, music, martial arts, movement culture, NLP, and hypnosis. And James is the host of the Agents of Everything podcast. So James, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Brian. It's really good to be here. Thanks, man. It's great to have you here. You're so welcome. And James, can you start off by telling me a bit about yourself and how you got to here? Okay. Um, a bit about myself. Okay. So right now, professionally speaking, I work with private clients and I also work for an organization called Rock to Recovery UK. Uh, so these are quite different demographics. It's doing change work in both contexts. Um, that people come to me in very different ways. So when I'm working with Rock to Recovery UK, this organization works with military veterans, their families, and has, has over the last couple of years extended into frontline services, emergency services, this kind of thing. So that's supporting people, originally military veterans who'd had uh, med medical discharge, this kind of thing. And there's obviously a high instance of um, either diagnosed or undiagnosed PTSD in that area uh, and that's a very very different demographic everybody i'm working with there it is free at the point of delivery obviously the coaches and the coaching team get paid the people that come to me privately they're different they know something of me they know something of my work they've come to work with me because of me and uh, that creates an entirely different sort of context and tends to draw entirely different sorts of clients um Sometimes this isn't quite a clean distinction, but I tend to think of my more uh, direct clients, people who come to me as often being, uh, they're coming to me for what I would call inspiration-based work and the other people that are there for desperation-based work. You know, desperation has brought them in rather than inspiration. Um, yeah, so that's kind of what I'm doing. And I, uh, the way I often frame it for people at Rock to Recovery is like by the time people come and see us, it's because things have got on top of them. And our job is to help them get back on top of things. Very simple frame. Okay, wow. And what, 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 like, let's say, you know, what was, what sparked your interest in this area? As I said, like, you know, like, and I know your work, like, you know, like, you know, philosophy, NLP, change work. Where did it start off? Right. Actually, when I started off when I was uh, a kid, when I was a teenager, I had a lot of, anxiety issues and fear issues all the way through my childhood through my teens by the time I got to my mid-teens I suppose my mid-teens I started to self-medicate um, with various substances and alcohol and all sorts of things anything I could get my hands on to deal with my anxiety issues uh, and obviously that's not a great strategy and it put additional stresses and pressures on me and I, uh, when I was about 19, I had an, an episode um, where I sort of got signed off work and put under the eye of the local mental health unit. Um, and I had this epiphany in that moment 
because I've been signed off work for two weeks and I'm like, you know, I'd wanted the world off my back. That's how, that was the feeling I had. I wish the world would just get off my back. Mm. Um, and I, and the world did get off my back. Everybody was suddenly like being a bit cautious, walking on eggshells around me. And they took me out of work for two weeks. And I thought, and I was out driving around and I thought I got what I wanted, but for two weeks. So what's going to happen after two weeks? Um, and it seemed to me that I was either going to keep spiraling down or something had to change. And I remember having this epiphany when I was driving and it hit me that the world is not going to reorganize itself to suit my needs. This is what sort of came to me as a moment of clarity. And I realized that I would have to sort of reorganize myself somehow to be a better fit for the world and I had no clue how I was going to do that. But I knew that if I didn't do it, the only other alternative was I was going to, I felt like I was going to end up sectioned because I really did feel like I was very, you know, barely keeping hold of my sanity. Um, or I was going to end up driving into the railway bridge that I drove under, you know, down this hill. Uh, there was a railway bridge at the bottom. And you often used to go through my mind that if I just swerve off and hit that bridge, then there's a solution to my apparent problems. So, you know, it looked to me like I either go down that path or I, you know, I either keep dropping down, spiraling down, whatever, or I climb somehow and have to build myself, rebuild myself, remake myself. And I had no clue how I was going to do that. But that's initially how I got into philosophy, because I sort of thought, well, maybe, maybe philosophy has an answer. Maybe if I understand the meaning of life better, um, I won't feel so oppressed by it. And um, yeah, that was the start of my journey. I can't say that philosophy was hugely valuable in terms of helping me with my mental health, but it was a place to start. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then from there, I, I got into some stuff which was more useful, which is actually uh, Qigong and Chinese martial arts. And that was quite useful. And then by the time I was about sort of 29, I think that's when I encountered NLP. And NLP was huge. It completely changed everything for me. And I used all the stuff like mad to to completely rebuild myself, my engagement with the world, everything. Uh, across about a five-year period, um, that was so I was using NLP for self-transformation, recreating myself in the world, my experience of myself, my experience of the world, way before I started working with other people for at least five years before I was working with others. Um, and then I just thought, well, wouldn't it be great if I didn't have to work for the local council anymore and I could take the stuff that I've been learning, I've been using on myself and maybe, you know, have a different career with it. And that's how I got into doing coaching and change work. Wow, what a journey, man. And thank you for sharing that with me. Yeah, well, for, being, for, for being so honest with me, because I think, you know, the idea of a kind of a wounded healer, and I find, you know, like I have a pretty similar story to yours, those teenage years kind of, you know, confused and kind of a lot of anxiety. And mm. I suppose there's no better way to kind of, you know, um, to show that something works than to use it on yourself. Yeah, yeah. And I have to say, I do find it galling when I meet people that go, oh, NLP's been debunked, or it's like, there's no evidence base for it, or whatever. It's, and I just think, you know, I did so much for myself with it. 
Um, and, and like if somebody turns, I remember somebody turning around to me and saying to me, do you have any evidence for what you're saying? And I just thought, you know, screw you. <laughs> Why do I need to provide you evidence for my own experience of complete, you know, transformation of my experience? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, but the whole evidence-based yeah. protocol conversation is a rabbit hole in and of itself, I think. Absolutely. And I suppose even to yourself, you could say, well, the evidence is you're looking at it. This guy didn't drive into a, into a, into a wall. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But often with people like that who have already decided, yeah. you know, there's no real profit in having a conversation. So I've sort of learned to let those things go when people say that kind of thing. Absolutely. Look at James. I love the saying. It's, 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 it's pretty difficult to win an argument with an intelligent person, but it's impossible to win an argument with a stupid person. Mm. Yeah. And, it, you know, even the idea that sometimes one of the things that I guess as I've got older is I think to myself, where's this headed? You know, early on in some kind of exchange, I think, you know, where's this headed? What's this person's agenda likely to be? Are they really engaging in this conversation with an open mind because they want to discover something? Or is it about something else? And if it's a game that I don't want to play, I'm just, I will respectfully bow out of the conversation early. Um, there's still going to be a lot to learn to do that, though, I have to say. Oh, yeah, me too. Well, I suppose you learn, again, another great, great quote I love is never argue with a stupid person because they will drag you down to their level and beat you with experience. Yeah. There was a, a, a meme somebody shared. It, it amused me a while ago, and it was something like arguing with a stupid person is like playing chess with a pigeon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, like it doesn't matter like how well you play. They're still going to strut. They're still going to foul all over the board knock all over the pieces then strut around like they like they own the place or something like you know um, absolutely absolutely i love that well again thank you so much for sharing it with me and again that that journey that that's taking you to here and diving deeper james into how you mind others as i said you're you know you're an authority in self-development personal mastery generative change work and let's say when someone comes to you you know like what are some of the most kind of you know, kind of common kind of issues people are coming to you with? And where do you start off with them? Right. So <clears throat> if I'm looking at, say, uh, working with the military vets, the, there is a huge amount of, I'm putting air quotes around it, PTSD-style stuff going on. Um, and that doesn't always, it's not always about experiences in combat zones. Often people who are recruited into the armed forces come from some rough backgrounds yes um so there's stuff going on ahead of time and, and what we're doing as an organization is not limited to just whatever came out of your time in the armed forces we're just there to help people so really there's a lot of stuff going on uh with that often lots of anger issues go with it lots of despair can go with it there's quite a lot of clients are suicidal they've come to a place where they think, no, I can't handle this anymore. But the other element to it is people assume it's all PTSD work. But one of the things about working with armed forces veterans is often they've gone in at a very young age. And that, that has become their life and their meaning and their identity and literally everything. That's who they are. And if they've got a medical discharge, it's not because they've chosen to leave. So it's like they've, they've been pushed out of something that they actually felt gave them a sense of purpose and meaning. And then they find themselves in a world where they 
haven't rebuilt purpose and meaning. So they, they often, I'm working a lot with people who just can't see a purpose to anything. Um, so there's, the, the work is happening on, on those two sorts of levels. Um, one thing I will say is, so everybody in the Rock to Recovery coaching team is a unique individual, but I think what everybody has in that coaching team has an NLP base to start with, but nobody is a NLP purist. Uh, everyone is eclectic. The way we also work is we do, you know, we're quite rigorous with getting feedback. We keep all the feedback and um, the coaches do perform. Everybody on the coaching team is getting consistently good results because the rules of the organization are, if you're not, you don't get to continue being a coach. So, you know, I think there's a really good team there. I think we're all really proud of the work that we do and not wanting to blow our own trumpets, but I do think that we do good work. And in relation to, let's say, as you said, you know, like the people looking for inspiration, I suppose, those those kind of army vets, you were saying there's a kind of, almost a kind of sense of desperation there sometimes. Yeah, it's almost always desperation by the yeah. time by the time they come in to see us it's we are not like like oh i fancy going and seeing some people to get some nice touchy feely fluffy coaching yeah um you know by the time they come to see us they are you know 99 out of 100 of them are really quite desperate and they will have gone through let's say that psychiatric model that mental yes, health model. very very often they have gone through that um they've received either cbt or emdr yeah um, and it has not helped them um which is Medicaid. not to say yeah and and, medications as well right. i'm sure last year yeah and i, I just want to say here i'm not going to be one of these kind of nlp people that bags out everything else that's not nlp um i'm not saying that there's no that people don't get help from the kind of mainstream i'm just saying that we don't see the people that were helped by that um, we only see the people that were not helped by it and sometimes unfortunately we see people who have who believe they have been made worse by the experience yeah um yeah. and i've seen this with emdr particularly more than cbt is emdr seems to have a potential when i think run by people who are possibly you know but two bounds to the protocol and not treating people as human beings and being adaptive enough in their approach yeah I think it can end up, you know, re-exposing somebody to uh, traumatic experiences and just deepening things. You know, it, it shouldn't do. If it's run well, that shouldn't happen. But that's about skill and facilitation. And I'm not sure that everybody who follows an evidence-based cookie-cutter model really thinks too much about skills and human beings and things like that. I might be biased there. Absolutely, and, and and kind of you know the the importance is to make it person centered and not have that cookie cutter approach. Yes, I mean like you know I don't know if this is still the case, um, but I know it certainly was the case a few years back because I, I heard a few reports of this. People who'd not done well in EMDR, who'd done their best with it, and then got sort of marked down formally as non-compliant afterwards, which is you know a crappy thing. To, crappy label to throw on somebody who's done their best to work with a protocol and not got anything from it. 
you know. Anyway. Absolutely. And let's say, looking at the people that are coming to you, James, for inspiration, you know, like for, um, you know, for, for um, you know, for help with, you know, things that aren't, you know, kind of, let's say, kind of so um, associated with, you know, let's say veterans or kind of, you yeah. know, like. Well, in, in, you know, in fairness, a lot of the people I'm working with there, they're people who are building businesses um, or they might be you know, within organizations and they're looking for coaching to uh, enhance their career. Now, still most of that work is to do with fears, anxieties, threat response systems firing off at inappropriate times. Yeah. You know, if people feel they're not rising up and they're not striding forward, well, they're laying low and they're hanging back. And the reason they're often doing that is because of fears and anxieties and this kind of thing. So it very often is the case that I'm still kind of working with the same material in some ways, maybe not so heavy, but there's definitely a lot of anxiety stuff going on and fear-based stuff. Um, the difference is, is those people who come in through that channel who find me, they usually have higher degrees of what I would call ownership. They know there's a problem, but they're not, then they're, they are really taking it in hand to do something about it rather than just feeling all is lost. And, you know, um, this is terrible. This is how I am now. I don't know if I can live like this. Do you see what I mean? So there's, there's a different level of agency, I think with, with that latter client group that are coming in for more inspiration, for more inspirational reasons. And they will have a bit more insight into themselves yes that can that is often the case because they are um on a self-development path anyway yeah um but it is not necessarily the case to say that um the people i'm working with through rock recovery are all uh, coming from low levels of insight you know some of them are, are some of there's different levels of uh, psychological mindedness amongst people, yeah. even within that demographic. So some people, there's, there's very little self-awareness, self-reflection, anything like that. Some of them are very black and white, nuts and bolts, earthy people. Um, and some are a little bit more open to things. I'm working with one guy at the moment who's been, who had read Eckhart Tolle's Power of Now before he came in and have been getting some value from that. So that sort of provided some some base to start from with him. Absolutely. And look at James, the reality is we're all different and we're all at different points on our path, like all seven billion of us. But look at, and even from what you were saying there and um, kind of talking about, let's say our shared kind of, kind of younger years, yeah. like a lot of this goes back to childhood. Like as I said, I work in mental health. Um, I have done for 30 years mm. and the, the, the model of kind of trauma led care at the moment is telling us that at least 90% of mental illness comes from childhood trauma. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And again, these fears, these anxieties, you know, like these aren't just, you know, kind of popping up in, in adulthood. Like they're, 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 you know, they're, they're coming from, you know, childhood trauma. And um, again, like I suppose the, the most common thing about childhood trauma is most people that have had a traumatic childhood would tell you that their childhood was fine. And, you know, there's nothing to see there. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, the, the reason I'm pausing at this point is because, 
I think there are degrees of these things. I tend not to think about things in terms of trauma. I know it's the common frame and I know it's a frame that doesn't get questioned, but I think people forget that trauma is a metaphor. Um, originally coming from the idea of wounds. So, you know, as in blunt force trauma and this kind of thing, and it's sort of been used as a metaphor in the world of mental health, but then people forget that it's a metaphor. So, I mean, one of the things that I'm often doing with people who have had some sort of diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, particularly, and these are people, again, for whom the frames that have been shared with them have not been necessarily useful. So what I'm about to say here is about framing. So what I'll often be doing with people is I'll say, you know, I say, look, I'm not allowed to diagnose people. I'm not in a position to diagnose people, and I have no interest in diagnosing people. But if I were to give you a diagnosis, my diagnosis would be this. And I pause for effect at that point. <laughs> um, I say, what's going on for you is you have what we could call a healthy mammalian brain. Right. And then I point out, and I do this as like a conversational hypnosis piece. So I'm not going to do the full version here because it would mean me going too slow and weaving in too many loops and things. But I point out that um, I say a healthy mammalian brain is adaptive. It learns. Right. I say, for example, if you were to take a cat, if you were to chuck it on a hot stove, it burns its paws. What does the cat do next time you show it to the stove? Or you show the stove to it? People say, well, it, it reacts. I say, right, because it's learned something here, right? Now, and I, I point out that people have, they have brains and responses that are well adapted. So, for example, I mean, if we're just talking about some, in, some experiences in combat zones, I'll say, you know, you've had these experiences. I say, what's going on for you right now? I say, you a uh, bit on edge? Yep. Vigilant? Yep. You know, because hypervigilance is often an issue. I say, so we could say you're definitely not particularly chilled out and laid back at the moment. And they'll go, no, they won't. And they might laugh at that point, depending on where they're at. I say, so if you were all chilled and laid back, back in Afghanistan, how would that have worked out for you? They say, well, it would have worked out badly. I say, right. So you actually became pretty well adapted to that situation, pretty well adapted to that context. And they may agree. So what I, I start to do is I start to play this frame in that they have a, a healthy adaptive mammalian brain. Yeah. And they still have this. And it is this adaptiveness that we are going to be working with to assist them in transcending the experiences they've had. Now, this goes for childhood experiences as well. Um, and I'm not trying to claim to be like some wizard that gets it nailed and everything's super simplistic on all of this. But what I'll often do around this point is I will actually run the charge off an embarrassing memory for them. Right. I'll say, I'll, I'll kind of segue out and I say, look, have you, um, have you ever done something like, you know, had an experience, something you did like that was kind of embarrassing when you think back, you just get this cringe and I pantomime that to them. And most people have got a memory that they cringe when they think about maybe where they embarrass themselves or whatever. Um, and then I do a little bit of, you know, submodalities manipulation or maybe some eye movement stuff. I won't do eye movement stuff if they've had EMDR and had a bad experience with it. Not at this stage of the game. Um, but I'll do something, you know, I'll get a subjective units of discomfort on the level of cringe on the memory. I'll do a little something and take that right down. Right. 
and then I'll get them to a place where they can't get the cringy feeling back anymore on the memory. Now, the only reason I'm doing that is to get them to see that change is possible. Um, and then get them also to buy in for process work. So, so I'm often reframing things and taking things out of a lot of stock sort of mental health frames. Uh, and again, the reason for doing this is because that's what they've come in through, these mental health frames. So often a, a, you know, a very different way of making sense of it is much more helpful and hopeful for them. Uh, yeah, so that, uh, and that, that applies across the board. And again, I'm, I want to make it really clear here. I'm not here trying to be superior and saying, you know, oh, I don't use the trauma frame or anything like that. I'm just being aware of where these people have come in from and what kind of organization of reality they've been given so far. And if that has not helped them, my view is a different organization of reality might. Absolutely. And you take it, I suppose, you, again, I love the way you're kind of reframing and, you know, it, it, coming in with a, a much gentler approach and, again, a much more person-centered approach. Yeah, absolutely. And I want people to get that they're a human being. I want yeah. them to get that there's nothing, like, it, it, it doesn't mean anything about them. Like, because often people make these secondary meanings. There's this thing going on with me, and I should be able to cope with it, particularly a lot of military vets. A lot of them, these uh, tough guys, right? They feel they ought to be tough guys. They oughtn't be struggling. They're certainly not asking for help from people and things like this. You know, so they've got a lot of secondary... Um, uh, it's, they're, they're really putting the boot in on themselves on a secondary yeah. level uh, because of the experiences they're having. So even just getting somebody to go, do you know what? Here's what's happening. This is a very human thing. I'm a human being. Um, even that, the relief that people get just from going, you know, in a sense, this is normal. This is natural. This is to be expected. You, you put people in these in terrible situations and, you know, they draw learnings from these going yeah. forward that create certain ways of being in the world, which may not be useful if you're trying to have a nice Sunday afternoon with your kids and your wife. But the original adaptation was actually very clever and yes. very efficient for that time. Right, yes. And their brain isn't broken. There's nothing wrong with them. Their brain actually did a good job at that time. Yeah, absolutely. So there's another metaphor I use because I'm in Scotland, so I'm working in Edinburgh. Again, people often come across from Glasgow, for example, but I'll use this metaphor anyway, regardless. But if someone's come from Glasgow, for example, I'll say, so you come over from Glasgow? They go, yeah. I said, you're in Edinburgh right now. And they go, yeah. I say, suppose you brought with you a map of Glasgow and you were going to then use that to try and find your way around Edinburgh. How do you think that would work out for you? And they go, well, that would work out pretty badly. I go, right. Like, even if it was a really good map of Glasgow. And they're like, yeah. So, you know, I want them to get, they've got a good map for their past experiences, whether that be in combat zones, whether that be, you know, in their childhood or whatever. They've built a good map, so to speak, yeah. for those environments. The trouble is they're not in those environments anymore. So a new map is required. You know, and, then, and so it's just, a, you know, it's just a metaphor to get people to go, right, yeah, we're just changing things. We're going to get into looking at how we can adapt, how we can recreate how we meet the moments of our lives, maybe do some stuff that's going to 
run some of the charge off some of these memories or, or, or whatever and um, incrementally move people to a position where they're feeling better, they're feeling more on top of things than they were before. Again, you notice that frame, like I was mentioning earlier, when people come in, I say, you know, people come to us when basically, um, what's, what's your language uh, criteria for this with regard to quote unquote bad language, Brian? Go for it, man. Go for it. Okay. So like what I actually say is in these situations, it's usually like people come to us when shit's got on top of them. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and I might then say something like, uh, I know it might be putting it mildly, but would that be fair to say that shit's got on top of you right now? And I almost always get a yes. Nobody says, no, I'm, I'm on top of things, right? It's a false binary in a sense, but I'm using it as part of structuring um, some potential shifts. So they say, yes. I say, so really all we're doing here is we're helping you get back on top of that shit, mm-hmm. right? So actually it's quite a modest... I'm not saying what we're going to do here is we're going to completely cure every ale that you've ever had. You know, that, that will be, and, and the reason I point this out to anyone listening, and this might not be necessary for your audience, Brian, but a lot of people in the NLP or hypnosis world seem to have this kind of like magic wand is going to fix everything in a 15 minute session kind of mentality. Uh, and people are complex as you all know, Brian, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know, like it always makes me laugh when people just look at people as something that can be fixed in 15 minutes with a wonder process. You know, to me, it's just moving people like there's no perfect way to live life. There's no perfect way to be. There's no, there's no version of reality in which we never have any challenges, difficulties, low moods, whatever that does not exist for a human being. Yeah. You know, so like in my view, in all the work that I'm doing, I'm just helping people move much more towards their more kind of grounded, resourced, able, capable self. I'm not saying they will never have a ripple of fear again. And if they didn't have a ripple of fear again, they would be frankly dysfunctional probably. You know, so that's my view on the work. And it's just helping people get into a place of power in their life where they feel they have options, choices, resources, um, a different sense of self in the face of things. I'm not going to undo and unravel everything in their past. Do you see what I mean? It's, it's, uh, we're going to rework a little stuff as we go, but, but there's often a rich picture that we're working with. Absolutely. And um, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the Stoics. I've been gobbling up uh, Marcus Aurelius right. meditations mm. last few, you know, all my life, but particularly the last couple of years, I've revisited Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, and just that whole idea of, you know, controlling what you can control because yeah. you can't control anything else. And I think that is, you know, let's say a road that a lot of people go down is trying to control everything. And right. you know, that fuels anxieties and fears. Yeah. And, and, and you kind of really have to go like, you know, what's in my con- control and what's not in my control. Right. Absolutely. hundred percent agree with that. Like one of the things, you see, I'm aware that there's a lot of processes that we can do that will often help somebody reduce their anxiety or some experiences they're getting some of the symptoms around uh, quote unquote PTSD. But I'm also aware that how they meet all of these experiences is a huge thing. Mm. And one of the places I think that people have the most choice or personal power is not with their state, not with their reactions, not even with their thoughts, but with their attitude. 
you know, how, and to me, attitude is how you meet the moments. So if sensations are coming up, um, you can meet those sensations in a variety of different ways, right? It doesn't, it doesn't, we don't have to drop into the same default reaction to our own experience and, and this kind of thing. So I'm often actually, one of the first things that I'm doing, not explicitly, I'm not cajoling people and say, well, you've got to change your attitude, you know, or anything like that but implicitly bringing people to a more empowered relationship with themselves and the experiences of their lives. Yeah. Um, you know, and because often when people are in that more empowered resource place, doing the sort of deeper work, quote unquote, becomes a lot easier than trying to dive straight to the deeper work and try and get rid of the bad feelings really quickly to rescue somebody who says, I can't handle these bad feelings. Do you see what I mean? So, like, I'm not saying that isn't valuable work to do. I'm just saying order and sequence-wise. Yeah. Often bringing somebody to a place of resource and personal empowerment in the face of what might be an unpleasant experience puts them in a greater, uh, in a better position to actually transform that experience. Absolutely. And I suppose building a solid base first. And what's coming to mind here, James, and look, I know this word is thrown around a lot, but like, it, it, you know, it is, you know, it is a game changer. Mindfulness, which mm. is being in the moment. And that literally changes your brain. You're, every time, every second you're, you're in the moment, you're building your prefrontal cortex, you're building gray matter, you're reducing yeah. your amygdala, you're literally shrinking that fight or flight reaction, um, which, you know, is, uh, as you said, it's a, it's, it's a good reaction, but, you know, sometimes, you know, it, it's not, the, it, it doesn't fit. But, you know, being in the moment and, you know, I talk to clients about nasal breathing, you know that whole kind of breathing in nitric oxide mm. uh, when you breathe in through the nose because you're literally breathing in nitric oxide which is a gas in your sinuses mm. like this is free medicine this is free um you know kind of let's say a mm. gas that changes your state it reduces your blood pressure reduces your pulse increases your immune system so you know mindful nasal breathing right for, for for me is a game changer for anybody that does it that's awesome, actually, Brian. I really like that. And uh, I'll thank you because I'm just going to steal that from you. <laughs> because this is the way my mind thinks about this. I'm not saying this is the way it is. But like, and even if that wasn't true, what you just said, and I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying even if it wasn't true, it's a wonderful piece of what I would call organizing reality for somebody. Like they get a story like the, the nitrous oxide is like medicine. Yeah. Right. It's like, oh, okay. And the fact is, is if somebody chooses to nasal breathe and remember this is medicine, yeah, that can act purely as a piece of wonderful, you could call it self-hypnosis. Yes. Right? Um, or self-coaching, if you want to put a different frame around it. It's, it's a, that's a lovely tool on a yeah. variety of different levels. I'm not saying that it doesn't just work in and of itself, because it might well do. But one of the things that you've got going on, I think, is when people get into a reaction set it goes one way only. It goes yeah. the way that reaction always goes. So like you're talking about mindfulness, I often talk about people becoming better witnesses to their own processes, which is, I guess, the same kind of thing. You know, what is it that's happening here, right? So somebody shifts, and as soon as they shift their attention, they're doing something different. So if they're going to do the nose breathing, they have to shift their attention. They have to remember, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and be doing it. And they can get into the experience of receiving the medicine and, 
I think that's really, really cool. Thank you, Brian. I'm stealing. Cool, man. Work away. Work away. And look, again, I know that works because I use it. Again, we talked before about, you know, I've worked in, you know, drug treatment and the prison services and mental health in kind of, you know, challenging behavior units. And I've also got three young kids. So, like, I know that nasal breathing works. And, you know, like, absolutely, it works for, for anyone that does it. Yeah, yeah, I really love that frame of free medicine. You can't, you, you, you have no clue, Brian, how much I'm enjoying that frame. Cool, man, cool. I'm delighted. I'm delighted. Well, look, James, thank you so much for sharing that amazing toolkit that you have with me, and just the amount of people that you're helping to, to walk steady on unsteady ground. Because look, we're all walking on mm. unsteady ground. Do you know what mm. I mean? Like, you know, it's 2023. We're all kind of swimming in a sea of stress. You know, mm. there's been, it's been a roller coaster the last few years. So we're all walking steady on unsteady ground. But I suppose you're helping people walk that little bit more steady on unsteady ground. So thank you for that. And can you tell me now how you mind you? Um, yes. Um, I actually had a burnout experience about three or four years just before the pandemic actually maybe a year before the pandemic um and i think it was a combination of things uh part of it is i had this really terrible flu and i had secondary complications and my wife thought i was going to die and i started to believe her at one point um but i think i got this kind of post-viral thing off this flu and i was trying to push myself back and i'd never quite had the same energy afterwards but i took on a very heavy work uh, regime. At that point, I was doing a lot of rock recovery work. I was doing three days a week, and they were long, long days. And I, a lot of them were clinics that were away from home. So I was going out and staying overnight. So it wasn't just like three days of nine to five. Um, I was in three days of that. I was running trainings every weekend. And the other two days, I was seeing clients. So I was doing these seven-day weeks. I was coming off the back of this flu. And I kept doing all of my clever mind tricks to put myself back on the horse and keep fighting through, keep fighting through, keep fighting through. And this is where I realized to being reasonably good at doing that, um, which means that I could sort of keep pushing things away. But in the end, I basically just fried my circuits. And mm-hmm. my wife actually contacted Rock's Recovery and said, James will not be coming in for a while. <laughs> um, and, and I really put off doing that because I knew that, you know, I had clients, I had a client roster and some of these are really desperate people and I didn't want to be letting them down. So I was putting a lot of pressure on myself to not let people down. Yeah. Um, so I did step away from rock for quite a while. I think what's different now is I, so I, I work, uh, I work a lot less for rock than I used to. And that's a choice. That's a choice for me. Um, because I want to make sure I've got the space in my life to do other things. I also had to learn. I used to think I was pretty good at putting down client stuff when I left sessions, but I actually wasn't. I just fooled myself that I was good at putting it down. Mm-hmm. I am now a lot better at legitimately putting stuff down. So I've changed my relationship. When I, and I have a deal with Rock now. I say, look, you book all the clients, you interact with the clients, you get all the feedback. I show up at the clinic, I do the sessions, I go, I give it zero thought between times. I'm, I'm explicit and I'm very clear about this. 
So in a sense, I'm a bit less of a team player than I used to be with the rock team because um, I don't allow myself to be so involved with it on an identity level. It used to be more of my identity. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Um, and now it's not. Now I sort of downgraded it to a thing that I do. And I have to do that for me. That is purely for my, my own well-being. Uh, so, yeah, I, I do this kind of thing. I take, I have a better radar for when I might be getting in over my head. I think a little bit more carefully about what I take on. Um, I recognize I'm not Superman, whereas I used to think that I was Superman. Mm-hmm. And aside from that, you could say things that I do, like uh, I, was, I was boxing this morning. I thought I had a 9 a.m. session, but it was a 10 a.m. session. That's why I had to nudge this back a little bit. So I do things like boxing, I do martial arts, and I, I make sure I just do things that are nothing to do with that world because I used to be in it all the time. And I definitely think doing something physical is important and getting out in the world is important. That was really, again, I think these things creep up. I think for me and for probably most people, just being stuck inside with a very limited range of experience during the pandemic was not a good thing. Um, So I make sure I get out and I have a, a fair degree of variety I'm a big fan of the work, rest, and play model. Do you remember Mars bar adverts? Mm-hmm. A Mars a day helps you work, rest, and play. I'm not talking about eating Mars bars. I'm just talking about having a fair balance of work, rest, and play. So the odd Mars bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because, like, here's the thing. Our culture values work. Uh-huh. Um, it doesn't value play and rest. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's very easy for people to sort of start to minimize their playtime and minimize their rest time. And often in their rest time, people are not even resting properly. You know, absolutely. Well, James, look, like I, I, as I told you, I do a lot of work in employee well-being, and I do workshops on positive mental health, stress reduction. Yeah. And I've done, I, I've done a ton of research on employee well-being, like, and you know, like work, and up, at least eighty percent of people don't like their job. Mm. And they're doing that job Monday to Friday, nine to five. So what's yeah. that? Where is that going to leave? The mm. world? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a crazy thing. I mean, like, as I say, I, for a while, I switched over from working with military vets for our rocks recovery to working with police officers, particularly in the Met. Um, and people know that the Met has got its troubles. That's been in the news enough. Um, But a lot of the people there in the Met, because they have to hang on in order to get their pensions. They have to hang on and do a certain amount of service in order to get their pension. And a lot of the people I was coaching, they're just basically, they are way, way past the end of their their tether with it. Um, But they just know that they're just like, I've got to stay in the game. And, (laughs) uh, you know, it's not healthy at all. Yeah. And it's like, and again, like, I've worked with, you know, like nurses, guard, police, prison mm. officers, and, you know, okay, if you're working in an office, uh, you know, with, with a, with a, you know, with a lovely kind of Zen garden outside your window, you know, mm. working till 65, you know, like it, it's, you know, it, it's doable. But if you're a prison officer, a police uh, yeah. officer, and a nurse in a, you know, ICU or A&E, you know, like it's a long road to 65. So again, um, you know, yeah, it's, it's, 
and it, I know France are out on the streets now because the retirement age is going up from I think it's from sixty two to sixty five. Yeah, like you know, like personally, the last few years I know lots of people that have died in their late sixties, early seventies. So mm. this thing about everyone living till they're hundred isn't you know I, I is a bit of a fallacy. I think. Yes. Yeah. And of course, you know, what you've done with your working life is going to have a huge impact on your lifespan. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. Well, James, look, if, like, for, we could talk for hours and we will talk again. But for now, thank you so much for being, you know, for so honest with me and for sharing that amazing toolkit and, you know, like the amazing work that you're doing. Where can people find you? Um, if people want to find me, uh, you can find me mostly probably just jamestrip.co.uk is a good place to find i would encourage people to sign up for my Substack. um you can find that through jamestrip.co.uk but that keeps people in the loop because i've got a youtube channel which has got quite a few subscribers twenty-three thousand subs and i do some stuff on there but my Substack is my central place but the place to find that is through jamestrip.co.uk currently cool and I will put a link to that to your website onto this podcast. Thank and you very I can much. Te- I can tell everyone I've been following James's work for the last eight years, and there's a ton of amazing videos and resources on his website and his YouTube channel. So I'd encourage everyone to check that out. And James, again, thank you so much for being so kind and honest and for sharing with me, you know, your journey to here, the amazing toolkit that you have and how you mind you and keep up the great work and best of luck with everything you do in the future. Thank you very much, Brian. Same to you. so much for listening to mind you and i hope you've learned about the benefits of holistic self-care please like subscribe and follow mind you podcast wherever you listen to it and please share it so we can keep the ripple effect of holistic self-care going out to the world you can find me and mind you at brian barnes wellbeing